You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. So welcome, wiretappers, to the second of the two-part series on this Royal Canadian Mounted Police operation that went wrong. If you remember, my guest, Elaine Olivier, was a young drug addict up in Canada, and he fell in with an informant who was working for the RCMP. And they have a narcotics unit. You know, these guys are like Dudley Do-Right kind of guys. But they have narcotics units and detective units and all that. Oh, this guy basically set him up. At the end of the first episode, he was getting ready to do... 100 years in a Thai prison. This episode, he's going to talk about his time in the Thai prison and what happened when he finally got back to Canada and his investigation into the dealings of the uh, Royal Canadian Mounted Police. If you are just coming into this one, go back and listen to episode one. I tell you, you need to listen to episode one. I got onto this from a movie called Most Wanted on Amazon. It's a very recent film. It stars Josh Harnett. And the comedian of all people, Jim Gaffigan, in a really unusual cast selection, the funny man Gaffigan plays a really bad character, a low-down, double-dealing informant who uh, destroyed this young man's life. But, you know, this guy, you'll find out in this episode, this guy, Elaine Olivier, had some real backbone. And, and he practiced stoicism, I would say, in that prison. I mentioned that to him in the interview that he got to acceptance and then he started helping other people is how he got through those eight years in the Thai prison and in in a way thrived and has thrived ever since. He's written a book, Good Luck Frenchie. He collaborated on this movie. He's doing podcasts now. He had a little bit of bad luck. The movie came out, got done, and the COVID hit. The book got done and he's they're gonna he's with a publishing company and they're gonna do a series have him go all across Canada and down the United States probably to do book readings and help sell the book and get publicity for the book and the COVID hit. So he's just sitting up there and trying to get his story out. So I tell you what, after you get done with this, folks, tell your friends about it. If you know any other true crime podcasts, get a hold of them, tell them they need to get this guy on. He can be reached at www.alaineolivier.ca. That's www.alaineolivier.ca. You have heard episode number one of this two-parter. If you haven't, you need to go back and listen to that one because it is riveting. I'm telling you, it is. Is what next uh, right up there ranks right up there with the skyjacker mr mcnally telling about when he skyjacked the plane this was really good folks so go back and listen to episode number one then come back and hear episode number two because we're going to find out about the aftermath a little bit about what life is like in a thai prison but you know only thing we know is is what we see in the in the movies and things like that well we're going to get it straight from the horse's mouth somebody that's been in one so elaine welcome back Hello, thank you again for the invitation. <laughs> if people wonder what the Thai prison looks like, they only have to go at alainolivier.ca on my website. There are a whole side where you have pictures taken inside the prison and from the movie that were pictures that were taken during the movie shoot in Thailand because we rented the prison over there for the movie and people will see how I spend my I spent over eight Christmas over there. <laughs> and people yeah. will see that even if we're through a pandemic, that life could be much worse than it is. When you first went in, you were just this 
skinny little flying foreigner, and you didn't speak Thai. No, you I did speak French, and there was probably some French speaking in, in Thailand, and, and a little bit pidgin English, probably. How did that work for you when you first got there, really knowing that you were going to be there for probably the rest of your life, is what you thought at the time? What described your emotions and, and then how you started fitting into the prison system? You had to like figure out how to fit in. I know you had to in order to survive in a deal like that. I guess our anim- animal instinct that takes over at that point. We human are we are much stronger than we think and we yeah. have to believe. But let me tell you that when I got to court from the police station after my arrest. And that they threw me inside the bullpen with hundreds of Thai prisoners with chains around their ankles. I was wondering what they had done because in my mind to shackle people like this, they had to be violent criminal killers, whatever. I mean, that was the first thing that shocked me the most over there. And then when they took us on the bus, that was like those old school bus all painted in blue. They had removed all the seats in there, and we were stacked like 115, 120 prisoners inside that bus Mm -hmm. to be taken back to Bambat prison. This is where all the prisoners or people caught with drugs were going at first. That was like, was also, could I say, myself in the book, I called it the cure, because this is where (laughs) we're taking care pretty good of Anyone going going over there with a drug problem, and over there it's not like over here where you have therapist and doctor. Over there it's <laughs> over there it's bamboo stick. <laughs> They're gonna beat the crap out of you. <laughs> That was awful. The prison was built in the 50s, and uh, it's only at the end of the 50s actually that they turn it into a prison. And uh, Bambat was part of a much bigger complex. And we were like 4,000 in there, and the prison was built like for 1,400 max, 1,200. So we were in cells like we were 100 people in a cell. In Bambad, the cell was 36 foot long by, uh, let's say, 14 wide. I'll give more than that, 16 feet wide by 36 feet long. And uh, people are sleeping on the side because there's no place to sleep on your back. And all you hear is clink cling, cling, that's the noise that comes from the chains. And when I got to the prison, the first thing I saw, as I said in the book, I don't want to sell all the punches, but if people want to have an image, there was a guy that was hanging through the barbed warrior at the top of the wall who had been shot that day because he had tried to escape the prison after he found out that his best friend had run away with his wife. And the, the guard just shut him and left him there for everyone to see, for a, just to make an example. And that's the first thing that I saw when I got to Bambat. Over 100 prisoners coming to Bambat with me that were chained and tattooed from here to toes. And barbed warriors everywhere on top. I mean, it felt a little bit, like I said, in my boot, like Auschwitz. I mean, people walking in line. Mm-hmm. Wow. T- towards a destination that they don't know if they'll be coming back or not. And at that point, I knew that the Canadian government and the RCP would do everything they could to keep me in communicado and 
to keep me from talking about Flanagan's death. Even a member of the embassy had told me not to talk about Flanagan's death while I was inside the Thai prison because it could be dangerous for me. The first thing I saw when I walked in was a guard skinhead who was beating the crap out of six prisoners bare naked on the ground. He was beating them up because they had omitted to salute him as they walked inside the prison. The guy was fucking hiding behind the door where they couldn't see him that gave you an ID. He beat them until their skin was like marron and brown and purple and yellow mm. and just wanted everyone to make sure that we knew who was in charge over there. Wow. If you were a drug addict and you were going through withdrawal, I mean, that was the same thing. That was enough reason to beat the crap out of you. And in Bambat, many of the people who were heading there were, many of them were junkies, cut with needles or small amount of heroin. I mean, it could be anything. It could be a little bit of pot. They had a few big legs once in a while that were came and coming in some, I mean, drug lords like I met Mr. Wow, who was the head of the Wa family in Laos. I spent over a year and a half inside the prison. I mean, you had all kinds of people. You had Uncle now was the main broker for all the the harvest for the opium north for all the golden triangle. Mm-hmm. Was telling a story about uh, that was the chief for Southeast Asia at the time for the CIA was a picture with him in Kunsa in Thailand <laughs> at the time of the harvest. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, I heard so many, so many, so many stories over there from prisoners also I spent time with. But when I saw a skinhead beating these guys up in my arrival, it made it clear I wasn't like Alice uh, to Wonderland. It had nothing to do with it. And a few minutes after that, that was the time to put shackles on me. Mm. And uh, this is when... Uh, I decided that uh, I would stand for everything. Actually, the day that I decided that never I would break before adversity was during my interrogation in Chiang Mai, the night of my arrest, when I ended up having a cop playing with his gun on my head for hours. And then he wanted to shoot me at some point. I was so tired to listen and be there listening to him playing with his gun on my hand. I told him to shoot me and I told him to fuck off. And he started cranking his gun and I was going to in withdrawal and I started puking on him. (laughs) A fucking bucket load. Bucket load of puke. His old fucking uniform was dripping. (laughs) Oh my God. He got so enraged, he cranked it up and between my eyes. And as he did that, I was sure he was about to shoot me. Someone came in uh-huh. giving order to take me back down. Wow. And this is downstairs that in the basement that I met all the Thais. And even the Thai police at the police station, just make a detail, I forgot before that, the head of the BMNU, the Thai police in Chiang Mai, asked me who had shot Flanagan. And he asked the Thais who had shot Flanagan. That was a detail I forgot too. So to come back to Bambat, when after the interrogation, they said, no, Never, nobody will break me. I will stand before everything. Mm-hmm. And in Bambat, when they put the chain on me, 
I had animals all my life. I never shackled a, even a dog for a minute in my life. And when they put shackled on me, it, it's not the physical pain that hurts. It's the emotion inside, the humiliation. You feel humiliated, totally humiliated. You got fucking 20 pounds of chains around your ankles. And when you go to court, because I was caught with more than 100 grams, they had another 20 pounds of chains and shackles around your ankle for your trip to court. And as soon as they put the chains in me and Bombat, by the time I made it to the water tank where we were taking a shower, it was like a, a long tub that made about 25 meters long, about a meter high by maybe another meter in width. We were just taking water like this to wash ourselves. But try to take your clothes off when you have shackles on. Mm, yeah. That's right thing of that. <laughs> yeah, I never thought about that. It's a bit hard. It's a matter of invention. You have to think of it. After a while, I understand I have to pull that this, like this and like that to the shackles. And I managed to do that. But just the trip from the blacksmith to the tub, I had both my ankles and the back of my feet bleeding. And that was these shackles. They were not clean. That was all rust oh, and boy. fucking dirt around that. And that I was open to get staph infection and all kinds of things yeah. due to that. So I ended up being chained. Usually the chains were kept for the first three months. But in my case, because someone tried to steal from me inside the prison, two samurais, two ties that were tattooed from here to toes, tried to take advantage of me, and uh, I wanted to just beat the crap out of them. One guard tried to, to keep me from doing that. I ended up pushing the guard, so my chains were kept much longer. And uh, much, much longer, because it didn't end that. After my best friend were transferred to another prison, a couple American guys, uh, I spent the first 10 months with them were transferred across the wall to the, the bigger prison. After their departure, the two same Thai guys tried to teach me a lesson because they tried to steal the cigarettes from me again, and they, I started laughing at them, and they, they made it clear that they were to come after me, and I waited for them. One morning in my cell, there was nobody on the second floor. When they came uh, by the door of my cell, I was waiting for them with a sock and a ball of soap oh, about yeah. the size of a grapefruit as hard as a beer ball. And as soon as they got near me, they never saw it coming. Mm -hmm. The small one, I, his nose wasn't even at his right place and his mm -hmm. and I got to finish with them. And it's a friend of mine who was one known dealer from a very, very rich family in Thailand who, to whom I was teaching English. Who, uh, went to talk to the director to ensure that I wouldn't be punished for that. He explained what did happen and paid the necessary money to keep me out of uh, uh -huh. the hole, but I was kept in chain. And, uh, uh, after 18 months of trial, I was sentenced to death. The judge told me that if I plead guilty and that uh, they would reduce my sentence to 100 years. And the only thought that came through my mind at that point was my mom. My mother was broken-hearted. 
and she already had heart problems. She already had gone through three different open heart surgery over the years. And I said to myself, if she ever finds out on the, in the first page of all the newspaper in Canada that her son was sentenced to death, that will be the end of her. She won't be able to take it. She already had gone through a heart attack the day she learned that I had been arrested. And now if I'm sentenced to death, what will happen? So I agreed with the recommendation made by the judge. And I said, all right, I'm going to plead guilty. So they reduced my sentence to 100 years. Relaine, yeah. Victor Malarek visited yeah. you. And that's kind of the movie is a lot about him. Uh, Josh Hartnett played, played his part in the movie. So he gets a lot of screen time. Tell us about how that went down and how that developed, your relationship with him. After the first interview, when he left the prison, he didn't believe what I was saying about the murder scenario, the 10% reward, and so on and so on. He said that the RCMP are, are cops. They cannot do this. And when he got back to Canada and started to do his own investigation through what went on, the RCMP refused to talk to him. And right away, that sent an alarm to his head because over the years he worked with the RCMPs on many, many drug busts, including tons of cocaine. And they took him in to crack house and he did all kinds of investigation in Canada for the Fifth Estate and also for CTVW5, which is the equivalent to 60 Minutes in the United States. Malarek was the top reporter you will have in Canada in the last 30 years. There was no one above him what he was doing as an investigative reporter. And as a result of his article in Canada, like I said, there was an inquiry by the RCP Public Complaint Commission. He waited for the final report also in 92 that came out. And he saw that was like everything has been whitewashed. But although if you read in between the line, it was a backhand indictment against the RCMP, but without saying it. That he got in touch myself. Myself, I need to do something about that. And uh, I went through access of information to get all the documents related to the inquiry about Operation Deception. And I was in the hole in, inside the prison uh, in Bamguan where they transferred me after uh, my arrest, after my sentencing, I mean. I spent several months in the hole because we were fighting for better conditions and everything. And uh, at that point, I had made a request to get all these documents. And it took like three and a half years before I got the documents. It included including the documents from McEwen that was so critical of the RCMP. And Madarek got a copy of that. So he decided to write a book about some of his investigative report that he did over the years. And he decided to take Operation Deception and what happened to me and to include that in his book to make sure that the truth will come out. And so McEwen's report, which the last 40 page was a clear indictment about the violation of my rights and the murder scenario, the, the threats and everything. So due to that, the Canadian government were forced to take me back to Canada under the prisoner exchange. The United States has the same treaty with Thailand about prisoners exchange. 
after so many years in Thailand, you're going back to your country to do your own, to do the rest of your time over there. This is how I got back here, but due to the resilience of Victor Mare, that he never let go. And when I wrote him about the fact that McEwen's report has been hidden, what he wrote made it up to the Chamber of Commons over Parliament in Canada, where the minister had to answer uh, many, many questions. So uh, in a third world country, you have to, I know you understand that, the living conditions over there are totally atrocious. Yeah. And myself, the only thing I had to use, I had a pen and some writing paper to work with. It's all I had. I didn't have visits. I mean, I was kept in communicado <laughs> for the first few years. No bed, no toilet. My mail was intercepted. Uh, I mean, I couldn't have access to a phone to talk to a lawyer. So the only thing I could do was to write to the Public Complaint Commission after McEwen's report was covered up. I made my own complaints about that and about Flanagan's death at the commission, telling them that the RCMP were lying about it, but no one wanted to believe me. And when Flanagan was taken back to Canada, there was no autopsy in Vancouver. He was taken from the airport straight to the crematorium to where he was uh, cremated. Mm. Wow. Well, that says a lot right there. More than that, that was, as one RCMP testified over after that year, he was cremated against the will of the family. Oh, wow. And as they done that, out went all evidence that could have taken forward to prove that he had been shot in the head. Coincidence. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. So you got back. What did that feel like when you first got notified they were going to take you back to Canada to, to the prison? That had to be, you had to be like ecstatic. I'm going to tell you yes and no in some ways, yes. But I have been lied to by my government so many times over the years. It gets very tiring to have your government right, lying to you because the Canadian government tried to get me back home before that with a diplomatic letter asking the Thais if they would consider the possibility of having me sent back to Canada prior to the eight years as found through the treaty of a, the exchange treaty between the two countries. And that was only like a suggestion they were making to the Thais, so the Thais refused. Dozens of prisoners getting King's pardon over there and with their embassy coming forth with letters telling them the specific reason why they asked for a king pardon, and all of them did get their pardon. The Canadian government couldn't do that with my case. Why? It all comes down to Flanagan's death, because yeah. no one wants me to talk about it. Another example, my website was hacked. Why? Only to remove the documents that I will be able to put back on in a few days. But oh, it's just incredible. It's all because of that. And when they told me that I would come back here, the document that they gave me to sign, I had two documents to sign. A couple of weeks before I came back, three months before I came back, documents signed the ministerial directive uh, that I had to sign to say that the minister had accepted my transfer to Canada, the minister uh, here in Canada. And when I started reading the documents, then I saw the minister writing at, uh, there was a second page, after study of your file, we see that you do have 11 convictions in Canada. Oh, no. They still thought that I was that other guy. 
God. That's why they kept asking me for fingerprint. Because when I was arrested, they asked me for fingerprints like five times. And after that, in Bamba, they asked me for fingerprint again. And after that, in 91, December 91, I was asked for my fingerprint again. Because the RCMP were still wondering if I had a criminal record or not. And the day that I was transferred, that they came to pick me up, uh, that was the Canadian Correctional Service. They came up with another paper that I had to sign that was uh, from the minister again, saying that I had to sign this paper to show that I agreed to be taken back to Canada by the Canadian authorities. As soon as I looked at the first page, I saw you have so many convictions, blah, 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 blah. And if you don't sign that paper here and that you don't agree with the content of that document, we're not taking you back home. Mm. So I didn't say a word. I signed the document. I was taken to the immigration center. And the, the day after that, because we had to, I had to sleep over in the immigration, in the morning, even then, they took my fingerprint and they had fingerprint from Ottawa that had been sent with the consulate to the embassy and the Canadian embassy and one of the consulate was there from the consular section and they started to compare the two set of prints. Yeah. But the Thai at the immigration couldn't make up his mind that they were identical or not. <laughs> and more than that, before leaving the prison, I got my head almost shaved up rather than have long hair. And even the fucking pictures <laughs> didn't look like me. <laughs> At some point, he was shaking his head. He says, no, it's the fingerprint that don't match up. And that's, that was the third secretary from the embassy who was there. Papin Pam, uh, her name was, uh, you know, she says she started screaming at the guy, the immigration, because we had a plane to take. Couldn't miss the plane. <laughs> so finally, they, they agreed to let me go, and I was taken back here to Canada. And since the Canadian guards had been pretty, not rough with me, but unpolite, because mm -hmm. when I saw them, when they came to pick me up, I walked out of my section, I had a tax on me, I had a smoking. Because one Canadian guy, a couple of weeks before, had killed himself at the Canadian embassy. He was coming to Bangkok to get married, and he found his wife with another guy. So he jumped off the roof at the embassy, and I ended up with all his clothes. Oh, really? And he had a smoking, brand new, <laughs> and I decided to come home in class. And when they saw me walking out of the section, correctional service from Thailand and from Canada were looking at me and shaking their heads, and one guard came to see me, a guard I was a good friend with, and he says, Alan, you cannot wear that to go back home. You're going to have to get changed. <laughs> I had to go change. And I asked the Canadian guard after that, I could see they were a little bit hangover. And I asked them if they had spent the whole night over Pat Pong in the red light districts. And one of them told me to shut up. And he showed a roll of gaffer tape, duct tape, to show me that if I, I wasn't shutting it up, that they would just fucking do it themselves with that tape so yeah i told myself you guys are gonna sweat it up until we get back home and it took like 74 hours to come back as we had stopped in japan and vancouver and everything i never let them get any sleep <laughs> I, would, I would ask them to go to the toilet every 20 minutes and 
I told them I had a headache, toothache, and I really had a toothache, but a real one, actually. I was drinking coffee one after the other. I was strength up. <laughs> and check that. When I got to the prison here, as I walked out of the plane here in Montreal, we were on the tarmac, and I just went down, and I kissed the ground. And I said, fuck, I'm home. Yeah. I'm going to make it out. And when they took me up to prison, I ended up at saint anne des plaines and uh, the guard in charge of the reception over there for uh, the new prisoners, he says, I smiley, long time no see. So I looked at him and said, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. I've never been here. He says, I don't lie to me. He says, I never forget a face you were here from that period to that period, that year. And your birth of date is that and that and that. I said, yes, but he said, I've never been here. I said, you better go do your homework because you have the wrong guy. And he says, we'll see it with your tattoos. I don't have any tattoos. Mm-hmm. And when I pulled up my shirt, when I got back from there, I was training six hours a day, seven days a week. And I was eating tofu <laughs> every day. <laughs> I was 15 pounds bigger than I am right now. And they could see I didn't have any tattoos. And they started to tell me, why didn't you tell us that you didn't have any criminal record? I said, for once, you told me to shut up before leaving the prison. So, mm-hmm. so you didn't ask me. Mm-hmm. And this is here that they realized that, that they had the wrong guy. The first thing I did was to call my old dad. My mom passed away just a few months before I came back. When Manarek Paul published his book, that was called Gott Einstein, Chapter Seeds of Deception. He called my mom to tell her that he had all the evidence proving that I was innocent. And the commission had covered up the old story because it was too critical of the RCMP. My mom, upon learning that, she had been my beacon for all those years. She knew that hope was the most. They feed themselves with hope to get by every day. And my mom, I mean, she's been there for me. She was writing me all the time, and she was keeping hope alive in me that I would make it back. And when she found out that I was innocent a week after she passed away, and she asked me before dying, she wrote me a birthday card, and she asked me to finish what I had started. She said she knew I was innocent. She kissed the card and she died in my... I learned when she passed away, in fact, I was sleeping in my cell and I woke up. I felt like taking off the ground. And I told everyone in my cell, I said, my mother died. And no one wanted to believe me. And I started punching the walls, concrete walls, and blood was pissing everywhere. And my fucking knuckles broken. And I said, tell you, my mom is dead. And it's like three weeks later, I got a note from the embassy informing me that my mom had passed away on November 30 at that hour. And I said, it's exactly at the time that I was taken out of my slumber. And uh, that was hard. I stopped doing heroin inside the prison as well. When I came out from the hole in 92, I decided that I had a reason to live. And uh, this is when I stopped using over there. And I ended up working as a doctor in my section. I got the school built for uh, all the prisoners inside my section who couldn't even write their names. And I was very active in the sense that I knew that every small things I could do to make 
people who were even more diminished than me, people who had nothing. It's total poverty for many people. They don't have anything. And I was trying to help them as best as I could. And I was feeding on that. Because since they had put chains on me up in my RS, I stopped believing in God pretty much as I said, no, there cannot be a God who will allow anyone to have people chains like that. And I rather believe in the process of living my spirituality in a way that every small things that I do, any small good actions that I give, the smile that these people are giving to me in return is all I need to to make it through. And I fed myself with that. The hope my mom was sending me and every little thing I was doing inside the prison to try to help the ties and the people who were the most destitute over there. This is what helped me to make it through. And the training, wow. the reading. And in Canada here, I, I called Manarek upon my arrival and he asked me what I would do. And I told him I'm going after the RCMP and the Canadian government. I ended up filing a lawsuit against them for $47 million. Hmm. Where does that stand right now? Were you able to get, carry that on? Is it still in court in process? No, as it is, the court declared that uh, my case was prescribed, that I had the legal duty to file suit while I was in prison inside the Thai prison at 12,000 miles away from home. Yeah. I had the, no way to communicate with an attorney and everything. Here the court said, because I had an attorney who tried to help me out to get me back home, that I could, I was able to file a suit. And you need money to file suit. I couldn't even have a discussion with an attorney. Everything had to be done through mail. And the letters sometimes would take three, four months to come in, sometimes six months. My mom sometimes would receive Christmas card in June that gives you an ID because my mail was kept, was intercepted. And just for the court, just to say that my case was prescribed and I had to file suit while I was in Thai prison makes totally nonsense. No sense at all. Whichever way you want. And more than that, they said that the murder scenario, the reward, the 10% reward, the threats, that didn't count, and that was a good way for the RCMP to act. Glenn Barry, who was their paid civil agent, didn't even show here in court. We were asking for a judgment by abstentia against him by default. And the judge says, no, they're not responsible for him. When the RCMP were responsible for him in all the other cases involved in Operation Deception, jurisprudence was even made in one of those cases when he got his brother-in-law busted in Gibson's BC for four ounces of pot, imagine. Mm -hmm. He got his brother-in-law busted. Mm -hmm. That guy, Glenn Barry, as I would discover when I got the old file, after I filed suit, was that he got paid $120,000 for his service to get me framed up. He was paid by the unit. And myself, I was classified as 1A target, which is the highest skill at the mm -hmm. top of the scale, at the top of the heap, like Escobar or Quonsign in the, I mean, you're like a drug lord when you're over there. You're a trafficker and importer, major, mm -hmm. major, major. And this is how they classify me in all their documents. And even here in court, when all this was produced before the court, that they were depicting me as something that I wasn't. The court closed their eyes to everything. And they accused me of lying because I omitted to tell them 
during the preliminaries that I had also written to a couple other lawyers asking them for their help. But since they refused to help me, I didn't believe it to be important to mention it during the preliminaries. So before the judge, I admitted that I did write to two other lawyers who said in the end that they couldn't help me out. They used that in their judgment to say that I wasn't credible and that I was lying. Mm. Oh. And everything, if you went to my website, RCMP Flanagan's death, the analysis, there is 175 pages of perjury, false statement, whatever you want to name it, about Flanagan's death. For a moment that lasted a few minutes, I got, I repeat, 175 pages. Boy, that's a lot of explanation. And the judge said, the court judge, first instance, that there was no evidence that the RCMP were lying about the death of their colleague. I brought that to the appeal court. When I got to the appeal court, one of the judges, media member, and for me, happens to be a colleague who used to work at the same law firm as the judge of first instance. So I asked for his recusation. It was turned down. Mm. And when I asked to have copy of my request for recusation, transcript of my request disappeared from the court of appeal from where they keep all the documents. Mm -hmm. It's just incredible. And uh, more than that, as my appeal went on, the judge who was writing my appeal, the main judge, ended up being promoted to the Supreme Court of Canada. He was writing his judgment, his decision, in a lawsuit that involved the Minister of Justice. Hmm. And the Minister of Justice promoted him to the Supreme Court the at Supreme the same Court. time. Wow. Before he rendered his decision, mm -hmm. they're saying there's no bias, there's no impartiality, there's no this, there's no, there's no that. I mean, it's just insane. I mean, and the law is clear in Canada. Cannot even give appearance to be in conflict of interest. That guy worked 12 years, something like that, with the judge of first instance for the same law firm on the same litigation team. <laughs> it wasn't enough to him to say, no, I don't want to take this case. And he went to take the case and he was promoted by the same person that I was suing for $47 million before the court. And more than that, at the end of the judgment, they asked me to pay for court costs and give me a bill for $500,000. Oh, no. And I'm tripled since 2002 because I got a victim of a hit and run in 2002. I was run over by a car because I was trying mm -hmm. to find out was I, what was happening to Derek Flanagan. I haven't worked since then. Mm -hmm. They gave me a bill for half million dollars to pay when I receive only like $120 a week to live on. Crazy. So that brought me up to write a book. <laughs> I, I see why tell us a little bit about working on that movie set then we'll, we'll let you go we're up here almost an hour and a half here I met the movie director a few weeks before trial here and he told me that he wanted to do a movie about this old case and he sat during trial for like some 40 days that we spent at trial over three months and it took altogether 12 years to bring the movie out because it wasn't an easy thing and we had to change all the names for most except for Malarek. and finally we managed to do the movie we started shooting in thailand in 2018 and daniel rabi the movie director ended up getting josh arnett on the movie amanda crew playing Malarek's wife jim gaffigan who was absolutely 
incredible and then that young guy who played my role Antoine Olivier Pilon who's playing I mean and you just look at the guy and he's piercing the screen I mean yeah. but that was a long story and we had to cut off one and a half hour almost so there's many things we would have loved to talk more about but with the distributor asking for two hour 12 minutes it was pretty hard to put everything that we wanted but Nevertheless, the movie went out despite the pandemic. I have to do a book launch and the movie's coming out and the, the pandemic is declared confinement and everything. Yeah. This is how yeah. I live my really? year. So that wasn't an easy thing, but I'm still smiling and I'm looking at avenues to get the Minister of Justice to open a public inquiry in Canada. And I will surely add the button on my website when the time comes to sign up a petition for a public inquiry. Right. This is what I'm aiming at. So now, folks, his website, you need to go visit his website. You're doing a little amateur detective work yourself because he's got all these documents on there. Right now, some of them got stolen by a hacker. Pictures from uh, Josh Arnett, Jim Gaffigan during the movie shoot. People have hundreds of pictures to look at. Yeah. As well as pictures inside the Thai prison. Yeah. It's a pretty good website. Repeat that website. AlainOlivier.ca a-L-A-I-N-O-L-I-V-I-E-R dot C-A. Yeah, so it, since it's in Canada, it's dot uh, C-A instead yeah. of dot com. Don't let that confuse you. But And I'll put links on it to my show notes in this. And I invite people also to uh, go see Murder was the case from Dr. Lee Miller in Toronto. I recorded like 11 or 12 episodes with him about this old story. So people will be able to have all the details. And Malarek is part of that. If they go back a few episodes, I mean, they should be able to start finding uh, the episode on uh, Operation Deception. Murder was the case, Alain Olivier, and they should get the information. Is that a part of a Netflix series or an Amazon? No, it's a podcast. A it's pod- a podcast. Oh, podcast, okay. Yeah, it's a criminologist in okay. Toronto who works on the cold case. He already exonerated many guys in Canada through... Uh, his book and his stories that uh, the investigation that he made and he's a, a very 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 cool guy dr okay. lee miller he's got several books pretty 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 intense book i'm telling you it's about whatever if it's king kong bundy or the green river murder or whatever he knows them all he wrote about them and uh, pretty very interesting kind of guy that you would surely enjoy to have on your podcast I was just thinking that, why don't you help me? I'll I'll get back with you on email or something and and hook me up with him or send him an email with my contact. I'd like to have him on. Just talk about whatever he wants to, but a case in particular. He'll be able to talk to you about my case pretty well. He saw all the evidence about Flanagan's death. And believe me, he was a He's a good guy, you'll see. (laughs) Okay, that's Murder Was a Case podcast with Dr. Lee Lee Miller. Okay, Dr. Lee Miller. M-E-L-L-O-R, yeah, Meller. Oh, Meller, M-E-L-L-O-R, okay, M-E-L-L-O-R, okay, I got that. And your book is, show us your book, if you're on their YouTube, folks, you're sitting, Good Luck Frenchie, it's got a great picture on the front of him with, what is it, 20 pounds of chain, (laughs) 30 pounds. And this is the guy who played the role, my role, Antoine. This is picture taken inside the prison. We rented over there for a month to shoot the part inside the prison in Thailand. And people will have so much details in there. And like I said, to avoid all the people who are skeptical to say this, this cannot be true. 
My website at alainlv.ca is there because all the documents that were used, official documents, court documents, were all uploaded on my website. People can read them and do whatever they want with them. They can download them. They can record them. They can do whatever they want. And you will see that I'm not making it up. Oh, Just yeah. let's dividends talk. And that's all I'm saying. All right. Elaine, I appreciate it. Now, folks, remember that. That is Elaine Olivier, just like Sir Lawrence Olivier, A-L-A-I-N-O-L-I-V-I-E-R dot C-A for Canada. And you'll find I've visited several times myself. I haven't had time to really peruse that but uh, I just started the book myself and it's a it's really well written book and it's and written people in. can write me from the website there is a, a page where they can communicate with me and they can send me emails yeah. that will come straight in my box here in my computer so now and, and I can testify to that because after I saw the movie I just googled your name and then I found your website and then I used your contact yeah. function and contact feature and before the days it was out or the next day, you emailed me right back. So uh, yeah, pretty he's there, folks. Don't ask him any questions. <laughs> I'm pretty quick on that. I just check your name first, and I went to see. What you've done. <laughs> Did just you Google me? <laughs> just to have a peek at who I'm, ta who I'm talking to. Who and <laughs> really? Uh, I, I do the same just, thing myself. I read your name I'm a couple sure of different ways. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> that this was a real pleasure talking okay, to you. What you're doing uh, okay. and helping me through that to get the truth out there and to invite people to read my book. And for people who need a little lesson of courage and resilience during the pandemic, read my book. You'll be you'll see that you'll be able to accomplish pretty much anything after that, I guarantee you. <laughs> really, there's a philosophy. I read a little bit of philosophy down there, and it's called the Stoic philosophy. And you are a Stoic, my friend. You've got to acceptance. There's another saying in a program I belong to, acceptance is the answer to all my trouble. you got to acceptance. That's what helped you get you through. I say, okay, I can't do anything about my circumstances right now. You had a mission. You started helping people. And that's what got you through, it seemed to me like. But I believe in being good to others and being kind to others. After what I've been through, I've seen people dying every day for eight and a half years. Whatever, if it was overdose, that was murder or people being sick. I mean, you live in an, in an environment that you just cannot stand by and stare at all this without doing anything. And I think I got that from my mom and thanks to her for that because... Right. She's been, like I said, she's been my beacon, and still today, I'm sure she's still looking over me, just like my old man now. I understand. Okay, thanks, Elaine. Talk to you later. Get in touch with me. I'll be happy talking to you. Okay, all right. Well, that was one heck of a story, wasn't it? I promised you. I promised you guys that. So, like I said before, email your other true crime podcasters about this guy and send a link to his website. Visit his website. Buy his book. I think you'll enjoy it if you like that kind of book at all. Check out that movie on Amazon, Most Wanted. It's free on Amazon Prime. I've worked with plenty of informants myself. I have twisted, bent, coerced, done everything I could to get the cooperation of a drug addict that didn't really want to give me that cooperation or to set up somebody big, somebody bigger, which is pretty typical, but I never entrapped anybody or set anybody up quite like he got set up. I think it was egregious what they did. That's a good $25 lawyer word. And especially not where they knew that the penalty could possibly be a death sentence. So thanks a lot, folks. And don't forget to hit me up on Venmo. Buy me a shot and a beer. 
Well, folks, thank you for listening and all your nice comments on the Apple Podcast reviews, plus your nice comments on my YouTube channel, where I often put up the uh, at least the Zoom interviews so you can see what my guests look like in real life. Also on our Facebook group, Gangland Wire Podcast. I see a lot of really good compliments on that. I've got some great people that help put up really good content, so if you want more mob information than you can shake a stick at, go to Gangland Wire Podcast Facebook page, or actually it's a group. Remember that if you support the podcast with some donations, you'll get an invite to my live Zoom call, where we'll share stories, answer questions, and in general, have a good time. Don't forget to buy me a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer on Venmo on your Venmo app, or you can go to Gangland Wire, my website, ganglandwire.com, and donate. I have a donate page, and, and each podcast that I put up has a pretty lengthy written blog piece about what the subject is, and at the bottom of that page, there's a way to donate. I have some fixed costs, and plus I'm raising some money for my next documentary, which is about the KC mob and the election fraud of 1946. I've already had to hire a film guy to do a couple of my interviews, and I have one more interview to film. Plus, I have an artist that I pay to do some illustrations for my movie. If you remember from Brothers Against Brothers or Gangland Wire, I use some illustrations in those. And by the way, you can rent those on Amazon for only $1.99. Or two ninety nine if you want the HD version. And finally, I have my book, Leaving Vegas, the true story of how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. Now, that title is a mouthful. But in that book, you're going to find copies of a lot of the transcripts of the actual wiretaps. And if you get the Kindle version, I took those audios that I got out of the court files and linked them to the book in the proper places. I have an explanation. And then the actual audio wiretap, which I think is kind of unusual. So you can go to Amazon and get that book and get it in the Kindle version. Gangland Wire supports the Veterans Administration and their programs that help veterans with PTSD. You can call their hotline at 1-800-873-8255 and push 1. Or go to their website, www.ptsd.va.gov. I hate saying that www. I left it out when I said something about gangland wire. You guys all know. I can leave that out. Anyhow, thanks a lot for listening, and listen up next week. I try to put out one a week. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.